groups. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Amal and Dan. Appreciate you guys very much. If you would, turn again to Romans chapter 1. And we want to continue trying to understand things that are going on in our country from the perspective of God in light of his word. Thank you. Obviously, there's all kinds of things going on just this week with the riots with regard to Breonna Taylor. You've got Christians being arrested in Idaho because of psalm protests, things like that. You've got Grace Community Church, it appears, going to be going to court. You've got election issues with the uh, potential appointment of a new Supreme Court justice, and it just seems like every week there's something new. And yet the the question is, is there anything that is common to all that's happening in our country? And one of the things that we've talked about is there there is a philosophy. There are a lot of different philosophies that kind of feed in to what's going on in our country, but there is one in particular that seems to have um, a great influence over a lot of people in various ways. And you could call it a kind of gospel, a, a different gospel. And so what I'd like to do this morning, uh, in light of the fact that last week we talked about the fact that um, in our country we can see in various ways a rejection of moral boundaries. We can see an acceptance of unnatural lifestyles according to God. And we can see the beginning of irrational thought and decision-making. And we highlighted at the end that the hope is, uh, according to Romans 1, the gospel. That even in a society that appears to be unraveling, there's still hope. It doesn't mean it's hopeless, but the hope is in the gospel of Christ. And Paul tells us why that is in verses 16 and 17. So I just want to read these two verses, and we'll go from there. And we'll highlight some other verses in the book of Romans that explains to us how Paul looks at the gospel. But in Romans 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, which is a way of saying, uh, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it no matter who I'm preaching it to, no matter what society looks like. I'm not ashamed because I do not believe the gospel can be overcome, because the gospel is the power of God. Um, It's powerful enough to change personal, individual people as well as societies. And it says that it's the power of God for salvation, which means rescue from sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin over our lives, and ultimately one day the presence of sin in this world. And it's a gospel that centers around Jesus. He's not mentioned particularly here, but that's what Paul is going to go on to talk about, is that the heart of the gospel is what Jesus has done for us, and those who trust in what he's done for us are given, he says in verse 17, a righteousness from God. And so wherever there's faith in Jesus, there is that gift of righteousness that has been bestowed. And therefore, there's a freedom from the penalty of sin, a freeing from the power of sin, and the promise of um, being delivered from the very presence of sin one day. 
Well, in our country, one of the things that's sort of maddening to me is um, how prevalent what we might call fake news is, false narratives, and things like that, because news has to do with what is happening or what has happened. Narrative includes what's happening, but it's a way of um, interpreting it. In our day and time, uh, sometimes spinning it in a certain way. And we're hearing all kinds of things that supposedly have happened or are happening. And then there's narratives about what that means and why it's happening. And then there's also the um, ideas of how we're to respond. And that's why you could argue that the kinds of things we're hearing today are a kind of gospel because the very gospel that we proclaim as Christians is a story. It's about what has happened and what is happening. It's also an interpretation of historical events. It's the truth about that story, and it includes a call to respond in certain ways. I mentioned before that there's one driving philosophy or or different gospel, you could call it, uh, that seems to be behind a lot of what's happening in our country, and that's the philosophy called critical theory. Many times it's uh, talked about in terms of things like critical race theory, but there's all kinds of critical theories that are applied to different groups and different areas of life. You may have heard recently that President Trump um, gave an executive order where he forbid the teaching of, I think it was critical race theory, in government agencies. He said no more is... uh, Uh, federal money to go to that kind of training. And we can actually see how even in uh, our own country in various ways, critical theory, critical race theory is beginning to infiltrate the church. Um, there, There are seminaries, there are Baptist seminaries, where there are professors who are advocating ideas and teaching that are consistent with critical theory or critical race theory. And there's the idea, there was just recently in our own convention, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. At the last Southern Baptist Convention, they adopted a resolution where they affirmed the idea that uh, critical theory, critical race theory in particular, was a helpful tool for interpreting and and applying the gospel, or interpreting and, and applying the Bible. The question is, can that really be the case? And it depends on whether or not uh, you really uh, consider all that critical race theory or critical theory, the bigger, broader picture, is saying. So this may initially not sound like it's very relevant to you, but I hope you'll think about the kinds of things that I want to highlight as we walk through both the true gospel and the different kind of gospel that we're hearing in different ways because uh, we probably don't realize, realize how pervasive the ideas are that are being uh, taught. In fact, critical theory uh, has been taught for a number of years, and it's influenced our country more than we know. And so there are five questions that I want to answer for us that apply to the true gospel, but also apply to this different gospel. The first question is, why is there something and not nothing? The second question is, what is wrong with the world? Thirdly, how do we fix it? How do we fix the world? Fourthly, what comes next? What does the future hold? Then finally, what do we need to do? And so hopefully as we look at those 
things, we'll see the contrast between two very different views of the world and two very different redemption stories, so to speak. And uh, so I've kind of um, outlined the true gospel in a way that's often done. Uh, Many times people have kind of summarized the true gospel in terms of the gospel story, in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And that's a very helpful way of summarizing what we have in the Bible in terms of the historical gospel, in terms of what has actually happened, what God has actually done to redeem a people for himself and to ultimately transform this sinful world. In terms of the interpretation of the story, many times uh, it will be broken down in terms of the truth with regard to God, man, uh, Jesus, and faith. Those four things are usually a, a good summary of the truth about the story, the truth about God and man and Jesus and faith. Then ultimately, obviously, there's a call to respond that has to do with repentance and faith. And so all of that is going to feed into how I've tried to present the true gospel as it's kind of summarized here for you. But um, let's just go ahead and jump in this morning. We're not going to be able to get all the way through this, but I really believe it's important that we think through these things because um, even if we haven't been influenced by it, we know people that have been. I know people that have been influenced by it. And if our goal is to love people, you have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand why they would support some things that we can't understand why they would support why they would do some things that we can't understand why they would do. And this uh, hopefully will at least maybe begin uh, to give you a little taste of it, and you can do further research on your own. But the first question that uh, both the true gospel uh, begins with, and in a sense the other gospels as well, is why is there something and not nothing? If you look at verse 20 of Romans chapter 1, Paul says uh, this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So there's a sense in which Paul goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, which is creation. And he talks about the fact that God created the world. That's the uh, his, his invisible attributes refers to God, God's invisible attributes. And what is highlighted there is that the God who created everything at, at a point in time is a good and great God. It says his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. Now, obviously, there's a lot involved in just those two two phrases, eternal power and divine nature, but there's a way in which I think you could summarize it just briefly. There's a little prayer that I think I learned when I was a kid, and maybe you did too. Uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. And um, you can see in various ways in the Bible that God's glory is tied to his greatness, how great God is. His glory is his greatness. But another important aspect of his glory is his goodness. When Moses prayed, God, show me your glory, God said, I will let all my goodness pass before you. 
And so God is great and God is good. And the Bible says that God created everything. And you can look at creation and see the greatness of creation, which points to the greatness of God. You can look at the goodness of creation and see the goodness of God. And so that the gospel, the true gospel, actually begins by declaring that there is something and not nothing because we have been created by a good God who is supremely revealed in Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus because the God who created everything is the God who entered into history in in the person of Jesus and that is what we proclaim in the gospel. Again, we could just think a little bit about this before we move on, but uh, the goodness of God is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, you remember, remember the scene in um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you're familiar with that story, where at the end, uh, Mr. Tumnus and Lucy are watching Aslan the lion walk off down the beach. And they begin talking about that, and I think it's Mr. Tumnus who says, you know, he's not a tame lion. And Lucy says, yes, but he's good. What does the tame lion, he's not a tame lion, mean? Uh, it's his eternal power. It's the fact that he can do whatever he wants. It's the fact that you cannot control God, that God is in control. He is sovereign. Uh, he is not someone that you don't, that you want to challenge or that you want to fight. He's not a tame lion that you can just uh, teach uh, to do tricks and make him do what you want him to do. But at the same time, he's good, which means he's going to do what is right. He's always going to be just. He's also merciful and gracious and loving. And so he's, he's a God that if we oppose, we should fear him. But if we desire to be right with him and we desire to humble ourselves before him, we can expect to be accepted and welcomed and loved. In fact, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called The Excellency of Christ, and he preached it out of uh, Revelation chapter 5, where he noticed the fact that in that picture, and Revelation is a picture book, it's 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 images that are meant to convey truth. And the images that are portrayed there about Jesus is, on the one hand, it says that he was a lion. He was pictured as a lion. But then the next verse says he was pictured as a lamb. He was both a lion and a lamb. And the way he talks about that is he says, A lion is a devourer, one that is able and desires to make a terrible slaughter, slaughter of others. No creature falls more easily prey to a lion than a lamb. The lion excels in strength, in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. Besides the excellent nature of the creature as good for food and yielding that which is fit for our clothing and being suitable to be offered and sacrificed to God. But in Jesus Christ we see both because the diverse excellencies of both the lion and the lamb wonderfully meet in him. So what he's saying is, if you look at creation and you look at the glory of some animals that have to do with their power, their strength, then that is pointing to the power and strength of God as revealed in Jesus. But you look at other uh, aspects of creation like 
the lamb, which is meek and good for food and all that sort of thing. And he says, in that you see Jesus as well. That whatever good thing that you see in the animal creation or in um, the physical creation, whatever good thing you see, all those things come together in a wonderful divergence and that everything points to Jesus. And he says one of the interesting things is that Jesus laid his life down as a lamb and he conquered as a lion. That he defeated Satan by becoming a lamb and he's the victorious lion of Judah by doing what he did. And in, in his sermon he actually uh, says, this is the stuff of fairy tales, where you've got this glorious, wonderful prince who finds this poor, um, ugly maiden and offers himself to her to be her husband. And what he says is, so honorable a person as this offers himself to you in the nearest and dearest friendship. Christ will himself give himself to you by faith, with all those various excellencies that paradoxically meet together in him to your full and everlasting enjoyment. That's another way of just picturing the glorious goodness of the God who's created everything. And that is what lies underneath, and that's what drives the very gospel that we proclaim. It says in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have, we have heard from him, speaking of Jesus, and announce to you that he is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. First John four eight says the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So how does this contrast with different gospels like what we have in critical theory and even other kinds of gospels? Well, critical theory and other kinds of gospels would say in answer to the question, why is there something and not nothing, they would say, well, it's all by accident. Because there is no God, and therefore life is godless and meaningless, and therefore we must interact with one another, and we must make the best of this temporal existence. CT would say, critical theory would say, based on certain groupings. And so they don't, they don't go back to the idea that that we've been created in the image of God and therefore we find our origin and our identity and our dignity in God and in be, being created in the image of God, they would say, no, you find your origin, your identity, and your dignity in the group to which you're assigned. So it's according to the group that you're a part of. That's where your dignity comes from. That's where your origin comes from in some sense. That's where your um, identity comes from. Um, It's interesting. uh, This is one of the premises of this other gospel. It says our individual identity, who we are as individuals, is inseparable from our group identity. Now, why is that important? If you were to say, you know what? I don't understand what's going on in our country. They're, They're telling us This group of people are all racist, no matter what. In this case, it happens to be the white race. It could be applied in other countries and to other races. doesn't matter. And the question is, 
why? What if I say, but I'm not a racist. I know that there are other people, that there are racists. There are white racists. I know that. But I'm not a racist, and I don't believe everybody's a racist. What would critical theory say? They would say, you can't separate yourself from your group. You cannot say you're different than your group. If you're part of the white group, then everything that is true of the white group is true of you regardless. It's kind of like there was an interchange between Cher and Rosie O'Donnell over um, Joe Biden and and, um, whether or not it was a good thing to support Joe Biden. I guess Cher was in favor of supporting Joe Biden, but Rosie O'Donnell tweeted, um, no more old white men. And somebody commented on that and said, okay, what's the significance of Rosie O'Donnell saying no more old white men? She was saying, it doesn't matter to me what you say about Joe Biden as an individual. I know what his group is like. His group, old white men, are a problem. He's a part of that group. I don't care how different you think he is or how different he says he is. He's not. He cannot be separated from his group. And so that's why we have the discussions going on in our country. That's why people are thinking and talking the way they are. But the true gospel says in Psalm 139, 13 and 14, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. The Bible says we are created by God, and he created each and every one of us individually. Yes, we are part of the human race, and there are some characteristics that we have in common as a human race. But we will all give an answer to God individually for our lives. And that's one of the implications of this is if we are made by God in the image of God, then one day we will answer to God. But if I'm simply the part of a group, the only one I answer to is my group. Why is it that, for instance, among some races, if, if all the people in that race don't adopt the same narrative, that that group will, will reject them even though they're of the same race? I've, I've heard it in different ways with regard in, in the black community, that there'll be some in the black community that will criticize other black leaders who are saying that they disagree with some of the things that are being put out by BLM and things like that, and they'll be condemned for that. And why is that? It's because they're not being faithful to their group from that person or that group's perspective. And so there's so much about this this way of looking at the world that influences so much of our dialogue or lack of dialogue in our country. But we as Christians need to hold on to the fact that we are all made in the image of God. We will all answer to God. And that is the most important thing that we can keep in mind. Well, let me just wrap this up very, very quickly here. But this is a great place to end, and this will lead into what we talk about next week is a second thing is that 
Paul says in chapter 3, look at uh, Romans 3.23. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? The gospel answer is, we have all sinned, past tense, and we all fall short, present tense, of the glory of God. Uh, The gospel declares that what is wrong with the world is the reality of the universal sinfulness of mankind and the just consequences of evil and suffering that it brings. Jen and I were watching a dateline recently where this woman had committed adultery, had a year-long affair with her best friend's husband. And the interviewer asked her at the end of the show, does what you did make you a bad person? And the woman thought for a minute and she said, no, I'm not a bad person. If someone who is an adulterer has an extended affair with their best friend's husband, if that person is not a bad person, what is a bad person? How do we define bad? If you can betray your best friend, and she would go on to say, I would never do anything to hurt my best friend. What is having an affair with your her husband? Isn't that hurting your best friend? She would say, no. There's something terribly wrong about that kind of thinking. That, that is a lying to ourselves. That is a lying to other people when you can say, I would never hurt you, but I will have an affair with your husband. And to say, I will have an affair, but I'm not a bad person. That kind of thinking is totally contrary to what the Bible says, and it, but it's very common in our day and time to think that, to, to have this mindset that bad, bad people fall into a very narrow category in one sense. In fact, when it gets to the issue of critical theory, sin in critical theory is oppression, which means the only real sinners are those who in, are in the oppressing group or the oppressor group, which means that white people, men, um, heterosexuals and things like that, those in those groups are the oppressor groups and they're the ones who are sinning according to critical theory. So much so that they talk about what is called moral asymmetry. Moral asymmetry means what's wrong for one, what's wrong for the oppressor group is not wrong for the oppressed group. It's important to understand because there was this journalist that put out some tweets that were very, what we would typically call hateful and racist, tweets toward white people. This was a, um, a journalist for the New York Times And people began to defend her. And they defended her by saying, the underlying power structure in American society is what differentiates these tweets from actual racism. Meaning that she's part of an oppressed group, therefore she can say those kinds of things and it's okay. But if she was a part of the oppressor group and said those things, she would be sinning. She would be doing something wrong. So you see how they've redefined sin. They've redefined our identity. We're not made in the image of God. We're, we're groups of people, so to speak, and that's where our, 
identity and significance comes from. And now they've redefined sin. And as a result, you've got a great um, self-righteousness on the part of those who do that and a contempt for others. It's sort of like what we find in Luke 18 where Jesus said, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We can be in a position where we see ourselves as righteous. There are those who would say, because they're in an oppressed group, they are always righteous. And they always hold the oppressor groups in contempt, however those might be defined. Well, what's the problem with that? Obviously, it's a way that feeds self-righteousness, and it actually hinders us from coming to Christ. The question is, what's wrong with the world? Is what's wrong with the world that there are oppressors and oppressed? That's what C.T. would say. The gospel would say, now what's wrong with the world is that man, all of us, we've rebelled against God. We're all sinners, and we're in need of a Savior. So if I say I'm a sinner, then that means I'm the problem with the world, like G.K. Chesterton said. I'm the problem with the world if I say I'm a sinner, or at least I'm a, I'm a part of the problem. But if I say I'm a victim, I'm part of an oppressed group, which that means then I'm not the problem, it's the people that are oppressing me, they're the problem. Therefore, I'm not the one who needs to repent, it's that other group that needs to repent, because I'm simply a victim of this oppression. Therefore, I don't need a savior. I'm the righteous one. It's those people that need the savior. And so, regardless of whether or not someone embraces formally critical theory or critical race theory, the ideas pervade our society. I'm not a sinner. It's that person that's the sinner. That's the one who really needs saving. And that's why it's important for us to understand what's going on because it's, it's that kind of perspective that we're trying to address with the true gospel. Because the truth is, Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. And only for sinners. That's the only people he saves. And so if I reject the idea that I'm in the sinful group, or I reject the idea that I'm a sinner and I shut myself off from being saved by Jesus. And Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you would help us to to understand a little better uh, what we might be seeing happening in our country, 
what we might uh, face as we seek to interact with people and love them and point them to Christ, what they might be thinking, uh, how they might look at themselves and how they might look at life and how they might think about sin and, and their own identity. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be more loving and patient and kind with the people around us. Help us also to engage them helpfully with the truth of the gospel, with a heart that longs to see them forgiven for their sin, that longs to see them embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we pray if there's anyone here today that has not done that, that they would today by your grace. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray.